There's a few things that you can't train. You can't train energy. You can't train attitude. You can't train ethics. You know, those are things that you can't train energy. You want a high energy person. You can kind of tell when you're around somebody, how somebody walks, how slowly they talk. Do they have mental energy? They answer your question, questions fast. And we're also looking now at adaptability. Do people fear change? Do they like change? Because that's, man, if you're not adaptable now. Hello, everyone. Just kidding. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business, investing, and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for joining me for another episode. I'm excited to talk to a good friend of mine, Terry Montesi, the founder and CEO of Trademark Property Group here in Fort Worth, Texas. Trademark is pushing the limits in the mixed-use retail world. Terry has incredible perspective on uh, real estate in general, but more specifically what's happening um, in retail and with the American consumer. And so I really look forward to a conversation with you today. Thanks for joining me. Sure. Happy to be here, Chris. How did you, just to like kick it right off, how did you, um, how did your career land you into the retail world? Yeah. So it starts uh, a long time ago. So uh, my family was in the grocery business in Memphis, Tennessee. So I grew up working in uh, retail my family was in retail, so I went to grad school at UT in Austin. I got out. I went to work for Lincoln Property Company in Dallas, and I was in office. So I, I, my retail <laughs> took a little pause. Okay. In 86, I started Huff Brass Medallion Montese here in Fort Worth, and in the same year, my brother and I became Blockbuster Video franchisees. So we were actually, I think, the fourth blockbuster franchisee in the country and so that that was real retail and so he and i raised money we put together partnerships and we built at one time we uh, either owned or managed with partnerships 100 stores and so i was doing uh, blockbuster real estate got actually trained on doing retail real estate by uh, the head of real re, uh, the head of uh, real estate for Blockbuster. His name was Luigi Salvaneski. I love it, and he was awesome. He started his career sweeping the floors at McDonald's, then became head of real estate international for McDonald's, and Blockbuster hired him. So anyway, I, so I I kind of learned. I didn't. Uh, I, I was worked in retail stores, but learned real estate doing Blockbuster video deals. Wow. Learned retail real estate doing Blockbuster video deals. I was an office leasing broker. Uh, at the time. And then we, so we started building some blockbuster stores. We'd find a site. We couldn't find a, a strip center to lease in. So we'd go build a deal, uh, uh, build a building. Sometimes we'd build a building with three or 4,000 extra square feet because the parcel was a little too big. So doing site selection, building those. And that was just in my blood. It was just, it was really fun. It felt 
very interesting. So we did Blockbuster and then at, at Huff Browse Midell Montezzi simultaneously. So I, did, I got into Blockbuster and Huff Browse the same year. And so at, at Huff Browse, I did some office, but also did some retail brokerage. And in uh, the crash of sort of 86 to 89 during that period, saw helped people lease and uh, buy, sell some retail properties. And so in about 90, 91, back in that crash, every single piece of property you drove by in Fort Worth or Dallas, with the exception of those owned by people like the Basses, and I'm dead serious, it may, it may have been 90%, but yeah. it was dang near everyone, went back to some bank, wow. uh, FDIC, the RTC, Texas Commerce Bank, like the uh, University Park Village, went back to Texas Commerce Bank here in Fort Worth. And so anyway, that's, that's how that started. And then uh, in 89, 90, 91, I'm, I'm seeing, working for clients and seeing them buy and sell things for 20, 30 cents on the dollar. And my brother and I had done partnerships for Blockbuster, raised a little money. So I knew how to do partnerships or raise a little money. You figured that out too yeah. here the last few years. And so started buying some retail properties. Was already doing a little retail work for Blockbuster, then started buying some retail properties and then started Trademark in 92, left Tough Browse to, to do that full time, take advantage of uh, acquiring you know, retail properties at well, way below replacement costs. And then when that ran out, there wasn't any more of those to buy. I stayed in the business and started developing and acquiring. And that was the birth of Trademark. There are so many golden nuggets in that little five minutes. The first one I would just ask is, is there anything in particular that the gentleman from Blockbuster taught you that is still relevant today? Like, what did he teach you that stood out? Anything? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Some of the things are how trade areas, so many people say, okay, here's the three mile radius. Yep. We've all fallen into that. Well, that's not how human behavior works because there'll be a bridge and Maybe, or maybe there's a bridge in one direction and there's a river that snakes around, but maybe there's not a bridge in the other direction. So you can have a three mile ring, but you can't get to two miles of it in one direction. Yep. So trade areas are really how people, how people's wind works. So where, where do I naturally go? Where do I go? So which is I go to work or I 30 is a great, that, that sets a lot of the wind for people that live in Fort Worth. Right. Because it's where it's, it's the East West road that gets us places. So, so he taught us about trade areas being, he uses something called the time convenience line. And a lot of people intuit it. So what that is, is just how long does it take me to get to a certain place? So a trade area, a, a basically trade areas, you know, elongate along where people can go fast, can right. move. And that's kind of, that, that's what most people would say. So the time convenience line is, so trade air oftentimes is elongated along the road where people can move fast, like say I-30. Right. And then, and then here in north-south, we have, so there are certain parts of town, you can't go north-south very far, right? very fast. And you, you know somebody. Right here. Yeah, that's a great, go south. great question. I mean, a great, great example. So we, you have to ask yourself the question is that, so when you're looking at a trade area, where can people get? conveniently here in a short period of time for blockbuster we were like five to seven minutes yep so the trade area was really a more of a drive or walk or bicycle now you know who knows but it was a, it was how long does it take people to get there and that was that was luigi's thing so he said don't ever look at a 
trade area, because how often are you going to have a grid where every street goes equally as fast in every direction? Yep. I've never seen it. Yep. So it's it's not a three mile radius. You really have to kind of like draw it out and figure it out. It's an amoeba based on people's behavior, based on where they can go. And sometimes it's even sometimes it's even based on the the wind is based on the less affluent people oftentimes will go, they will drive to the affluent areas. Right. But the affluent people their win is not to drive towards the less affluent areas. Right. So even though I can drive from my house into a less affluent area, if I never do that, right, that may not really be part of the trade area. And, and there's been care. a lot of mistakes, real estate mistakes, based on that sort of, you know, not not thinking about that sort of thing. Right. That's a psych. That's a psychological barrier, not a physical or a traffic related barrier. Would you argue that like? Almost you and your team have to do that calculation. Every time I've done a third-party study that is a trade area, it comes in as very much what you said, where it's, you know, it's a big circle and these are your people. And I always look at it and go, half these people are not relevant. It, it, it's kind of got to be done at the ownership level. Yeah. I would say it's an art, yep. not a science, and that you, you use science, you know, artfully. And I think we're, I think we've gotten over the years and you see how many gray hairs I have. Um, we've earned them and we've gotten pretty good at that. Yep. Um, the other thing you said, which I think often about, uh, just kind of where we are in the market and you said from 86 to 89, you mentioned the crash and then you left to start a business because everything was really cheap. Um, my question is, is there an inflection point where you go from being scared about what's happening to optimistic that now things are 20 cents on the dollar and it's time to start? Or like, at what point were you comfortable buying? Well, the reality is I'd never done it before. That was my first cycle. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wired fairly optimistic, but I'm, I'm, I, I kind of classify myself as a, as a moderate uh, measured entrepreneur, not an entrepreneur that just trusts instinct constantly and will do anything my gut tells me. You know, I use a lot of science and I, I don't want to lose money. I, I like to make money. I don't like to lose money. Yep. So back then I'd say just, you know, when you're doing it every day for these people and you're seeing, you're seeing it maybe start to run out. i am never forget literally the RTC published a book of trouble properties, the properties that they got back. And I remember one time, Chris, literally the book was an inch and a half thick. Wow. Single spaced. Every space was a property. Oh my God. Think about that. And so from, you know, this state to that state, to that state, to this trade area, to this, you know, city, to this product type. So, you know, you'd have Alabama and you'd have Birmingham and you'd have <laughs> retail office. And I mean, it was crazy. Yep. And I remember combing through that looking for the nugget. Now, had I had access to capital and smarts and experience, I would have just bought the book yeah. <laughs> because you made your money buying at that time, not being so good at plucking the cheapest one out of there. Right. And the truth is, looking back, probably the ones that looked most expensive at the time probably were the most resilient and their pro their prices came back fastest because they were the highest quality ones. And so I, you know, I, I know that today. Right. So I don't know, because because you look at today, we're late in the cycles to so the reverse of what you asked. At what point do you know? And then when 
when the cycle's down, it, when do you know? I think a lot of that is gut and experience. And, you know, if I had, if I had that answer in spades, I'd, you know, I'd be a gazillionaire yeah. and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd have a reality TV show on how to make money. I love it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, well, I just hear about that Texas crash so often from yeah. people that have been in it forever. Yeah. And I just can't imagine a world where 90% of buildings have for sale signs in front of them and are bank owned. Isn't that crazy? I mean. Now, in some ways, you would look forward to that moment. Yeah. So long as your capital, yep. your investors didn't lose it all with. That's the problem. For sure. If your investors lose 90% of theirs, then you're not able to take as much advantage of that. But yeah, it's a that was a once in my lifetime. I thought this past crash, which was almost equally as severe from a macroeconomic standpoint, but the way the government handled it did not provide opportunities like right. the last one did. Yep. So 92, you start Trademark. And I really want to get into where we are today, but just the evolution of what was Trademark doing in 92 and what's it doing in 2019? Yeah. and But that's super relevant yep. to what's happened to retail. For sure. We were just adapting yep. along the way. So 92, we were... We were you know, 91, 92, starting to buy this stuff that was back at the bank, RTC, FDIC, or maybe on its first buyer who stole it, who was willing to sell it reasonably, still everything below replacement costs. So I was really mainly putting partnerships together to buy properties that were still at distressed pricing, uh, not always from the banks or the RT, RTC, FDIC. And then started because development had been shut down for and you would have enjoyed that because yeah. development had been shut down from 86 to 92 just shut, i mean shut down wow completely shut down every sector mm. nothing built so then you can tell that the things are turning a little bit the economy's getting a little steam there was some pent-up demand with like retail expanding retailers so the first deals we did were like barnes and noble and old navy were, were the anchors of the first couple and, and and I knew those brokers and I knew those real estate people yep. and they needed somebody to build for them. And so we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma and Jackson, Mississippi building where those guys needed something. And so we we're buying at the same time. We just, we started to build and I had never worked for a retail developer. I, I haven't, hadn't been an apprentice learning from a retail developer, then going out and being one. I, I was with an, a Lincoln in office development. I was learning it by helping people doing tenant rep for people and doing blockbuster deals. And the first deal we first two deals we did, one was 140,000 feet. One was about 300,000 feet, but had anchors. So, you know, it didn't, it, the size didn't intimidate me because the process of, and you, you, you've probably figured that out building a 30,000 foot office building or building a 60,000 foot office, the exact same process. Yep. The only real different is the size of the personal guarantee or the size of the equity check. Yep. It's not necessarily any more complicated. Now, maybe building a three million foot campus with three buildings with amenities for a big corporate users, that's probably more complicated. But so those didn't intimidate me. I built three and four tenant blockbuster anchor deals, right? And so, so they're two million dollars or a million and a half dollars, and this is twenty or thirty million dollars or fifty million dollars, whatever it. It just um, was the same process and it, we had anchors. So we had 50% ish 
pre-leasing done, 60% pre-leasing done. Yep. And you're talking to 10 other tenants who are interested in Tulsa or Jackson. Yep. You knew you were going to make them because there was a lot of expense, unlike today, lots of expanding retailers and sort of competing for spaces, yep. borders and barns competing, you know, so we don't have that today. The physical world expansion is, is relevant to today's like web expansion and That's the people right. getting more. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I think about the lar- larger developments in a lot of ways are easier than smaller developments. And that's just the people that you work with and the, the size of companies and the experience, the bigger you get. Okay. So that takes you into what, the late nineties, that kind of world. And then the internet starts heating up. Oh, I'd say like, like what was the next evolution? No, I think, well, you, you hit it right. So the late nineties was when I started paying real attention to, I'd say, the public realm in shopping environments. And the first one, we really focused on that. Well, I guess, no, there was, there was two. So, and sort of design, let's it's, it's design and public space design. So building design, public space design, the experience with Preston Royal, where Central Market, where I did the first small central market that they'd uh, done, which just got destroyed, that shopping center. I sold it to Regency a number of years, and you saw in the, in the tornado. Yep. That center's been it's shut down. Wow. Tenants have moved out, and they're shut down, having rebuilt most of the whole thing. So we did that in, like, mid-'90s, and then late-'90s did the Trinity Commons Center ground up at Hewlett & Bel Air, and and bought the first uh, time I, no, I actually bought, we did a little public art at Preston Oaks too. It's Preston Royal, it's called Preston Oaks. So those, those are the first two where we integrated public spaces, public art, more intense design. When I got involved in Trinity Commons, Lincoln had, had it fully designed exterior and layout. And when I got involved, we, we ended up raising the money and jointly leasing and jointly developing after they already had the ground lease done and they had the, Tom Thumb deal done with my friend Robert Dozier. We basically threw the plans away, except for the Tom Thumb that we could move them. But right. we took some sh- shop space out, added public space, added public art, went all stone and Ludoichi clay tile and just built it because it has sensed that, that it could be more than just a grocery anchored center right. if, if we invested a little more in the design and the public uh, realm. And it worked. Yep. So we attracted some more lifestyle type tenants, what we call them at the time, as opposed to just service tenants, just grocery anchored type tenants, and the rents were higher. And that kind of launched into mixed use, really focusing on public space and kind of evolution toward where we are today. How many companies, because when I think of your company, it is so, I mean, the, the projects that you tackle require so many moving pieces. And when you talk about public space, when we talk about it on a podcast, it sounds like these two words, public space. That is being a developer. I know how unbelievably critical and hard it is to master that. So I guess my question is, what was it that triggered that consumers are starting to change and the places and the environments that they're in actually matter? Yeah, that's a great question. So part of it was, I had uh, a wiring, and that's why I went to work for Lincoln. So I interviewed with Crow and Vantage and Lincoln and Transwestern. And the reason I picked Lincoln, at the subconscious reason, I really liked the higher quality product. Right. Lincoln did. They kind of did 
uh, on average, the nicest product um, of those companies. They were more, a little more focused on quality. It just felt like, you know, you get one life to live. You can, you can live it however you want. And, and I had a, uh, an ethos that was not just about making money. Like my stack of money wasn't necessarily even as important as my stack of accomplishments on, you know, building interesting legacy projects. So that's actually, you know, I, you have to balance that. That was, that was a innate purpose in me that I didn't have to hire an ad agency to say, well, get, I need a purpose statement. So people will think we're cool. Right. Just, yep. I had an innate attraction to doing quality places. And as you're looking around in back in the late nineties, early two thousands, you had uh, Easton town center, was built late nineties, South Lake town square under construction and design and getting built in early, early two thousands. And then just that there was writing architects talking about new urbanism. I was kind of went to some charrettes with Andres Duani back in the mid to late nineties. And I just started, started and, you know, and traveling because, you know, as you get a little bit older, you get a little bit of money. You can take your wife to travel. You go to Europe, you just start seeing, plazas and public spaces and how people uh, use them. And so uh, just watching what was happening and evolving and, and uh, watching mixed use, really the suburban mixed use, non super urban mixed use, like Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue, where people took it to edge districts or took it to suburban infill areas. It just felt authentic. It felt like, you know, that's where the, that's where I think the consumer is going to go. That's where people want to spend their time. And so so we moved there. Our first project that was really sort of fully, a fully baked public space centric mixed use development was our Market Street Woodlands project in the Woodlands. Have you yep. ever seen that? I've seen it on your website. Pictures. Yep. We bought the land from the Woodlands Corp in 02. Okay. And made, had an anchor deal, had a deal done with HEB, actually closed on the land out of pocket. But we had a lease under negotiation, but it wasn't signed. Yep. Bought the land and then it did close. And we got in a big, uh, we got in a big fight with GGP across the street uh, because mm -hmm. they didn't like it that we, that they were partners with the Woodlands in the mall and that the Woodlands, their partner sold us land to compete heads up with them, but didn't tell them. Yep. And they weren't happy. So they went and tried to take us down and we ended up in a little legal battle because they didn't do it in a completely up and up way. Yep. And I'm being very politically correct. Yeah. And we fought back and pushed back and uh, we settled and uh, we survived. And today our project is absolutely the heart and soul of the Woodlands community. It's where it's where the 4th of July parade is. It's where the big Christmas tree lighting is. It's where if you're falling in love and you go on a date, you live in the Woodlands, you're hanging out at Market Street Woodlands. So, so that public space, that was a... Picture this, as people would say. So <clears throat> it's O2. We're looking for an equity partner. And Kimco, the REIT that's still around, had a KDI, which was a developer finance entity that was a subsidiary. And so we go to, and Kimco's a grocery anchored power center. You know, they didn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of, they had no mixed use, not a lot of uh, lifestyle, public space centric projects. But they were in the market. We talked to them. And so we're, they were interested. And so we're, can you imagine having to say we, we want to build a $2 million public space and take a half acre of the land 
and spend $2 million on things that aren't going to get a direct return. Right. Like there's, there's one, two, three pieces of public art just in the public space, maybe four, plus a expensive pop fountain, plus a, at the time, like $50,000 tree that, you know, today would probably be a $100,000 tree yep. that if you go to the website, you see, it looks like we built around it. Right. But in fact, we didn't. Um, and that project has a hotel office, lifestyle retail, community retail, but did not, uh, they, we didn't get zoning for multifamily, but it's, it has aged beautifully and uh, stood the test of time and is still a very relevant design. And we just made a Louis Vuitton deal. I mean, it, it is, it is where the, the, if you're a better tenant and you want to go to the woodlands, you want to come to us first, right? Mall second. What makes a good public space? I feel like there's a very fine line between a great public space and a cheesy, you know, turf garden that people run around. How, what, what, what do the best people get about public spaces? Yeah, well, yeah that's a, that was an interesting observation. And my other question, yeah. well, I can ask it when you're done, but it's often that the banks don't underwrite public spaces as worth a damn. Yeah. It's, you have to then show that rents would be higher, but they look at comps and say, and so it's often tough to get the, to those types of things financed. It's, it's just like a, it's like you said, it's an art. Yeah. But I'll start with what makes a great one versus a cheesy one. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll probably just answer that whole thing together. You know, where we start, we are, we're, we're different and it, it, you know, we think it's better, but I, I can tell you it's for sure different in that we really start our whole process by listening and learning, collaborating engaging with stakeholders and we look at the community and so if a community already has a public space that has a pop fountain in it and they love that pop fountain and they already have a you know whatever other amenities they've got 10 places where they they can go and play cornhole with restaurants around them etc then our public space may want to be different so we really look at what who's the customer going to be right and if it's going to be families with small children, you build a different public space than you yeah. do if it's going to be adults. Right. So who's the customer going to be? You listen and learn and, and see what the amenities are. And obviously don't, you don't just, we believe that doing things cookie cutter or standardized from city to city, community to community is just really dangerous and, and idiotic. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for big, huge companies, big, huge REITs to argue that that's more efficient and they're right. And, but it's not more effective. Right. A big difference between yeah. efficient and effective. And what's effective, I think, is, and we try to design for people's subconscious. Yep. We're trying to get their subconscious when they're thinking about uh, where they're going to spend time tonight. We try to get their subconscious talking to them. Right. You know, you really like going over there, even though it might be three minutes farther than that other place. You really, you, I really like it there. We, we've had fun there. Yeah. We, we, we love it when we're there. We like it when we're at the alternative. And so we want to listen. So when we design a public space, it's super customized, super authentic. It almost always reflects the local arts community. And so we just try to try to build a public space that fills a need. It also is complementary, not just to their lives, but to the tenants that will surround it or mm -hmm. be on it. And scale, if you have, you know, it, it, how tall are your buildings? How dense is the project? Again, like I said, who are the users? 
oftentimes you we build something for children that's separate for something for adults. But what makes a great public space, usually it's amenities that are relevant, it's flexible, it's programmable, but it's also fun and interesting when there's not an event being programmed. It feels like it's theirs. I'll never forget, I was at the Woodlands at our Market Street project one night, right after we opened, in the marble slab, which is right by the public space. I'm standing in line. Yeah, I didn't have a sign on me that said I'm the owner. I just yeah. stand in line dressed like you and I are probably more casual than we're dressed now even. And I heard somebody say, you know, da, 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 da. He said, hey, I don't know you. He introduced himself. I said, I'm Terry with the project. Oh, really? He said, he starts talking. I said, what do you think of our new project? He said, let me tell you, last weekend, got, say, two boys that were five and eight or something like that. Uh, he said, last weekend, I said, uh, what do y'all want to do? He said, let's go to the park. What park do you want to go to? And in the Woodlands, they've got a park in every community. So there's probably 15 parks yep. to choose from. We want to go to that park over that's over by Tommy Bahama. <laughs> and he met the public space yep. that was in the middle of our project. And they, the kids and the dad thought of it as a park. Yep. So they thought of it as theirs. Yep. So when you drive through Market Street, it doesn't, there's not a big sign that says Westfield or Simon or Trademark. Right. It's just, they just feel like it's a street that goes through their downtown. Yep. And they know friends that office there or their family stays in the hotel. They just, it feels like it's, that's why it's called public realm. We, we want ours to feel like true public realm. No, no sign that says you've arrived in Simon or GGP or Westfield's domain. Right. You better watch it. You yeah. better behave. And you know, it's just like, welcome. Yep. Not yeah. really public, but kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Use, but don't screw up. Yep. You know, don't be too human. Anyway, and, and as far as financing, you know, I think if somebody's doing business with us, particularly today, and like that first one, but what was crazy, Kimco is sort of buttoned up as they were and, and, and foreign to the mixed use lifestyle, high amenity, amenity rich environment. They didn't push back a lick. Really? On our $2 million public space. Wow. And I'll never forget. I have to tell you a story real quick. Are we okay, okay on time? Oh, Can we yeah. tell you a story? I interviewed a young man three, four years ago from a, a, a big retail development brokerage firm in Dallas. And he was a developer and we were looking for a developer. I think it was when Edward left. Yep. He comes over and we're talking. Et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> I said, what do you think? Like, where's your head when you think about mixed use and mixed use places and public spaces? Tell me your thoughts. And his answer, and I'm not making this up, and you're you're, you're gonna you're gonna see how how uh, foreign or how alienating it was. He said, "Well, you know, I've I've never been with a company like y'all's. I've never had an unlimited budget, yeah, to just go do all that stuff yeah. that you do. So I really don't understand it. When we do our projects, you know, we have to have a direct return on everything. We have to show the return on everything. And if we think if we take out the public art and the public space, we're going to make more money. And he paused. And I, my subconscious was going crazy. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, unlike almost <laughs> any other moment in my business career going, ah! Oh, yeah. I don't know what to say. I've got 10,000 things to say to this kid. Yep. So I just took a deep breath. And I said, you know, and he mentioned, actually, he mentioned Market Street Woodlands, now that I remember. Yeah. Like, you know, that like that green with all that public art and that pop fountain, you know. 
we, you know, the way my company thinks is you'd have made more money if there were buildings there. So I said, I want to tell you a story. I said, so that project cost $110 million back in 02. And that was 2%. It's about a $2 million public space. Had we not had that public space and that $2 million spent, we wouldn't have made the Tommy Bahama deal. Tommy Bahama said, we've never been, we've only been to resort communities. They were in Scottsdale and then like, is it Boca or Naples or, you know, one of those yeah. places. And Florida. All over in these big resort towns. They were there in Kierland Commons out in Scottsdale, et cetera. You know, South, I mean, uh, Southern California. He said, we never would have gone had you not built this resort style environment that we could tell was good. People were going to feel like they were on vacation or at a resort. We wouldn't have done the deal. And I told him, I said, had we not made the Tommy Bahama deal, I listed the seven or eight deals we wouldn't have made. And I said, so that project, instead of going from 110 to somewhere around $300 million in value, it, it may have gone, if, you, if we'd have built a totally different thing, the margin would have been, you know, whatever the margin is on the things y'all build, you build them for 100, maybe it's worth 130. Mm-hmm. And you're happy. Yep. Um, but that was the best $2 million we spent in the whole project. And so, um, you know, your team just doesn't get it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that interview, I didn't end it right there, but it ended, Yep. you know, it was functionally over. Yep. I tried to just hang in there for 10 more minutes so as not to embarrass him. But it is, so banks have, I, I don't get any. If you're doing business with us, yeah, you get it. At this you're point. doing business with somebody who is sort of an artisan and somebody who believes in mixed use and believes in, you know, the uh, is really focused on what the customer needs are. And so, uh, nobody, no financing institutions really push back much on what we're doing. Yep. There's probably no um, asset class that's been under more of a microscopic lens um, in the last call it four or five years in retail. Um, oh, for sure. You, you know, people are now taking Ubers. People are now ordering most stuff off their phone. The, the, a company we have all heard a little bit about of, um, Amazon is growing. I have heard of them. You heard it, have heard of them a bit. <laughs> I'll ask it this way, defend retail. Yeah. And defend your style. So to, if we haven't already painted the picture, Terry is focused in a high-end retail environiment. But you Exper- can't exper- experiential amenity rich experiential mixed use environments anchored by retail. And there's a, I think, and I and I fall into that category. I do not believe that as humans we're headed to this world where nobody needs to be with each other and and uh, have fun outside of their you know bedroom with their iPhone. They can actually get into a place that uh, provides community. So. Um, that is kind of the the problem that I feel like when I, I think of you most is you're tackling that problem of we're going to keep the the world engaged with each other. Mm-hmm. Why is that going to work? Yeah. And, and why are people wrong about experience retail not being the future? Yeah. And and, and just what's going on and yeah, how are we reacting to it? So I, I always start macro and go more micro. Yep. <clears throat> so to start most macro, we, we had too much C and D quote unquote retail space, one and two story built back in the, you know, 82 to 86, 87 range. And um, so there was, all, so our country at, you read the stats, so at 23 square feet per capita, 
that does not include street retail in our country, though. But the ratios are pretty similar, even when you add street retail in at 23 in Canada at 11. And then most of the developed European countries at four to six. So there's 23 square feet of retail for every human being in America. Yeah. Non-main street, non-high street retail, non-main street retail. And in Canada, it's say half. Okay. And then in, in the developed countries in the rest of the world, it's four to seven. Wow. Generally. Yep. Um, and so we have too much. So you start where we have too much. And so you hear people say the analogy is like, we're not oversupplied, we're under demolished. Yep. And I think all of that is a great place to start. Okay. And so if you start in an environment that is, is way oversupplied, and then you give the customer super convenient alternative uh, means to acquire commodity goods that, you know, those trips, which are not gratifying psychologically or socially at all. And then, so all of a sudden, 30% of those, so do you know what GAFO is? No. So GAFO sales is general merchandise. And so that's Kohl's and Target and department stores and, and then apparel and accessories. It's all, you know, what yep. that says. So most of the stuff that's in University Park Village. Right. Um, on for, on uh, university. So stuff in malls. And, and then F is furniture and furnishings, home furnishings. And then other, the O is, is mainly books and electronics, the best buying bars and noble and stuff. So what all that is, is the stuff in shopping centers. Yeah. It's not, it's the stuff in non-groceries. It's not groceries, it's not gas stations is a huge piece of retail sales. So when you read oh, only 10% of retail sales are done online, that's BS. If you're in the shopping center business, that's really irrelevant. You got to, you got to break it down. 30% of the GAFO sales have migrated online. Boom. Think about that. Yeah. And seven to 10 years ago. So when it all started, when e-commerce started, it was about five, five. And how could it be five when it started? It's because that's catalogs. Right. So catalogs are part of the, they, they're not lumped in with e-commerce. So catalogs are at five. So we've gone from five to 30 in that stuff in shopping centers. In the last seven to 10 years. Wow. Wow is right. 600%. Boom. Boom, baby. And so that is all the growth that there would have been and more because people are buying more stuff. My wife, no question, acquires more stuff because it's so easy to. Right. And I get, I mean, look at the business I'm in and I get, there are boxes at my house every day. Yep. And I'm not making that up. I mean, every day. Yep. Just so easy. Yep. So I think so. It's taken all our growth and it has grown the market. So when retail, you look at retail sales are up 3%, retail sales are up 4%, not at bricks and mortar, but total. And part of it is because we've made it just so much easier. And think about those people that live 20, 30, 40 miles away, 50 miles away from shopping concentration. Look how much easier it's 10 times easier for them, right? It's 50% easier for my wife yep. and it's still working, right? So so that, so that you start macro, we had too much B space, C space, D space. Then you make it super easy. And so what, what's happening is the, the uh, retail places that have friction, hard to park, I got to drive out of the way to go there, or 
that um, that only almost solely provide commodity goods uh, which are available online. Those places are in peril. And we just need less bricks and mortar retail, period. So I, I you know, as I've, I'm, I'm not immune to thinking about, whoa, what's happened to my industry? Think about it all the time. So I looked up one time and said, okay, so seven, should I get out of it? You know, I don't have to do it. I've got my kids are taken care of. My kids have gone to college and we have a house. I don't have to do it just to survive. Should I stay in it? Well, I started looking around and you look at all the retail and retail and mixed use places in the country. 70% of our economy goes through is the consumer. So call it essentially that's retail sales. There's a few others. Let me just call that retail sales is about 70% of our economy today. You don't read about this, but we did some studies and came to the conclusion that roughly 70% of that, and this was a maybe 18 months ago, so it might be a little less, but roughly 70% of that goes through bricks and mortar. And so let's say today it's 65%, 67% because e-commerce has continued to grow. So 70% and 70%, 70% through bricks and mortar of 70% of our economy is half our economy. You know, if you took a fourth of the 70% that goes through bricks and mortar away, which means e-commerce just grew by three or four times mm-hmm. more bigger than it is today. Take a fourth of 70 away. You're still at, was that 52 and a half? Yep. So let's say over the next 20 years, while I'm still alive, bricks and mortar is still 40 to 50% of our economy. So I, I decided, my team decided, you know what? Big institutional owners, folks that own retail or mixed-use projects with significant retail, they're going to need help. Yep, They're going to be more nervous and going to look with a more uh, discerning eye for somebody that really is focused on it, leaning in, thinking about the future. So we decided to kind of go after market share in an industry that's still massive, Yeah, right? And the other thing is not just go after market share on generic retail, but we also believe that amenity-rich mixed-use environments are really some of the best-hedged, best real estate assets to own. Yep. And if you think about, okay, so now if you, you think that retail is exper- moving towards experiential, the customer, when they go to re- places that have retail or F&B there, they're going to be real picky. They want the environment to be great. Yep. So to us, we said, okay, we're going to lean in. We're going to help institutions because they're going to they're going to be more nervous than ever. And the things that we develop and redevelop are going to be experiential, amenity rich, and they're not going to be conventional. Yep. And you know, I hope it works. Yeah. It's working. Uh, uh, the the thesis is working pretty well right now because the demand for our services, our, what we call our institutional services business. So we're redeveloping the Galleria Dallas right now. Yeah, I heard about that. We're redeveloping the Memorial City Mall and a 22-acre site, old Sears site in Houston. So an institution calls you and says, we have this asset. It's it's not performing like we need. We're willing to put more money, but we don't know how to do it. Will you do it for us? Yeah. Or, hey, we're, we're in this asset. We know it's probably not worth what it was when we bought it, but we think it's pretty good real estate. Would you come Help us take a look at if you think, you know, if we 
if invested, how we, could we invest? Do we sell it or do we keep it? If we keep it, what do we need to do to evolve it and lower the risk, lower the fashion risk? If you think about that GAFO thing. So a lot of these projects have too much shop space, too much apparel space, and we're evolving it and adding F&B, adding food hall, adding co-working, which is a non-retail use, adding medical boutique fitness. And so the business is really changing and we've decided to be sort of on the front edge of the change, adapt and lead. And it's fun and interesting. And where we believe this, the, the institutional services business has real legs and, and we have good demand there, but we've really invested in it. We've hired, we have an in-house redevelopment group separate from our development, our, our ground up development group. We have, uh, we've hired guest services, people from Caruso, <laughs> you, know, oh, yeah. you know, so, oh, yeah. so that worked, that worked at uh, Caruso's project, the Grove and Americana brand. So we've now uh, taken over the guest services at the gallery, added about 70% more services. Yep. We're doing that at our properties. We've added an in-house uh, innovation and design person, basically somebody who works on the details and the artisan in the local arts. Wow. Um, and so we're leaning in uh, to the experiential, amenity-rich, retail-anchored, mixed-use environment. That's a lot of de that's a lot of adjectives, but it really really necessary to kind of to tell you describe where where our head is. You're headed more towards being like a Ritz Carlton than <clears throat> a retail develop like a typical real estate developer. Yeah, a, a, a mixed-use. What do you uh, call it? So where, where we're going is in mixed use development, high service, yep. hospitality and amenity rich, um, mixed use environments. One question that came to mind when you were mentioning that besides maybe the economics of what they would be willing to pay you not working out, is there a reason why you would tell an institution, sorry, we can't work on your project? Yeah, we, we just, we just had a big, big one. We, uh, were approached on. And, and we priced it such that, because we knew it was, it, it should have never been built. Okay. But it was big. It was there. It had department store, had hotel, office, way too much retail, almost obsolete indoor retail building connected to an outdoor area. And we priced it as such that, you know, if they said, yes, it was worth it, but we weren't shocked that they didn't. And we said, you know, we really want upside. This is going to be really hard. And so, yeah, if we don't think we, that it really has a long-term vital future. Is that because of location mainly? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some things got built in more edge cities, right. suburbs that, that can't support the psychographic, the demographic, or, or maybe they're only 12 minutes from a fortress. Right. And so uh, some retail got built that didn't really ever need to get built. Yep. So, yeah, we... we, we um, we say no if, if we don't think we can add real value or if we don't think it's a vital trade area that's uh, long term. Yep. Then, um, you know, we're we're not a uh, commodity service firm. We, we, we only want to work on things for, with big institutions that we can have important long term relationships with that we think we can make a real difference and that really are vital long term. There's a I don't even call it a rumor. I've just as I've. Uh, been preparing for this, just been more engaged in figuring out what you've been up to. But uh, somebody mentioned that part of the experiential is not only doing what you've been doing, but starting to possibly edge into the hotel and multifamily businesses mm -hmm. like a full mm -hmm. circle. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's not a rumor. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we're interviewing right now for multifamily developer to join the team. Hospitality, not necessarily. We'll get into that, but we already do office, but we're probably going to lean even further into office. Yep. And uh, I'm almost positive we're going to be a retail office, multifamily, public realm, uh, mixed use integration. Where does the hotel go? How does that parking work? Shared parking expert, et cetera. But we, I think we, um, we feel like uh, we do so much work building the brand and building the amenities yep. to sell off the uh, multifamily and let those people you know, make all that money with on all the work we did. Yep. And the, uh, it doesn't make sense. The other thing is that we're understanding that the brand and the, the, the services. So we're, we're at Waters Creek. We're, uh, our guest services platform is, is also now, and we've added those services to our multifamily that we own there to the office that we own there to the retail. And man, it just makes a big difference. So yep. if you want to have an event, it's an event that, your customers, your retailers, your office tenants, your residents can go to. You can bring in a speaker. It's just it's so it just makes so much more sense. So we are we we want to be a full service mixed use developer. Not sure we'll get in the hotel business. Yeah, but we might contribute to land and and own a piece of that hotel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're definitely looking to get in the multifamily business. Cloud Kitchens just raised four hundred million. You know what Cloud Kitchens is. It was the former founder of Uber left. It's basically outsourced kitchens. So McDonald's now, if you're ordering your food online, you don't care that it came from oh, a yeah. Chipotle restaurant. You yeah. just care that it's made by Chipotle. Yeah. yeah and I know I, I saw, there's another word for the, that. Type Ghost of kitchens. Kitchen. Ghost kitchen. Yeah. yeah. So we're we actually working on a space at the Galleria, which is, I think, one of the be one of the great sites in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex because it's so close. Yep. It's within 10 or 15 minutes of so much of the metroplex with and it's got LBJ East West and Tollway yep. North South. So, oh yeah, so go, a, a big ghost kitchen consolidator. Yep, expansion firm. It's gonna happen. Oh yeah. So you you mentioned you were hiring several people, multifamily developer. You've been on a hiring spree the last couple of years, um, which is fascinating. As just the leader, and this isn't mainly directed towards real estate. How do you know you found the right person? So I have a few hiring credos. There's a few things that you can't train. You can't train energy. You can't train attitude. You can't train ethics. And so, you know, somebody like attitude, if you're, you know, however you were raised, however you were around, however you were treated, by the time you're 25, 30, 35, you're pretty baked. And if you're kind of a glass half empty, kind of pissy kind of person, so we do a lot of interviewing around that. And we do testing, you know, psychological testing, which can tell you that. Yep. Um, so, you know, there, those are things that you can't train energy. You want a high energy person, the testing tests for energy. You can kind of tell when you're around somebody, how somebody walks, how slowly they talk. Do they have mental energy? They answer your question, questions fast. Do they have to pause and think, I wonder what he's thinking, <laughs> you know? So th those are things that you can't train. And we're also looking now at adaptability. Do people fear change? Do they like change? Because that's, man, if you're not adaptable now. So looking for innovation and adaptability, you know, in people, those are the main things. Yep. And we also let way more people at Trademark meet, and uh, you know, someone that's in the interview process than we used to. Yep. If you had to give your 
21-year-old or 22-year-old self that's leaving college advice after 30, 40 years in the industry, you can't be a day over 40 years old, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would you tell him? So, yes, yeah, so I have uh, so my... I have a 27-year-old son okay. who's not interested in the industry. So me, so getting out, let's say I'm getting out of graduate school and I'm 23 and I, I, could, I could give myself. So I'd say focus, focus on, if, if you want to be in real estate, you're making yep. that assumption. Yep. Focus on a sector that you think will, you'll find intriguing and satisfying long-term. Um, I'd, say, I'd say focus on a sector and have a, have a, Purpose, feel, feel, uh, uh, make sure that you're going to feel really good about what you contributed over the, those decades, um, and and you know what you did was going to make a real contribution. Um, you know, I would I would say really focus more than I have on uh, relationships in the industry, and I've got really good ones, but they could be better. I could have done a better job focusing on that. I'm a little selfish. Yep. You know, I don't like to do a lot of evening things and t too many business lunches. I'd like rather take a walk with my wife and be home at night. And so, um, might, I might push that a little more, but, but, um, but still just stay, stay true, you know, to yourself. Yep. Um, and listen a ton, research a ton, listen a ton and don't, oh, don't rely on yourself too much. If we had to come back on this podcast in 10 years, which we might do, mm -hmm. but you had to make a prediction right now on something that you think is going to be maybe something that's gone, maybe something that's more normal that people can't even predict yet. What's your, what's a bold prediction you have for the next decade? Well, I have a, I have a maybe not so bold one that's related to what we've been talking about. I okay. think, I think we will have environments built that are super successful that have no conventional retail, meaning you may have a hundred thousand feet on the ground plane of a mixed use environment and not one place where you can acquire a good that you take home. It's all services. F and B places to learn showroom retail. I, I definitely see that happening and think the, the other thing retail continues to get demoed. There's a lot of it. We three malls in Dallas gone the last five years. Um, so a lot of retails, retail continues to get demoed, et cetera. I think what I'm seeing is that where we have all this, re like if you go to Bleecker in New York city, all these different streets in New York, every mixed use project in any urban area here, we, we just are so used to the ground plane being retail. Right. I'm going to be able to lease that for retail. Right. No longer. And wow. so what our business and how we, the, the specs in our business, the stats, uh, yeah. Are you in the retail business? I'm in the ground floor animation business. I don't know what we're going to call it because I think it's going to be medical there's going to be, there'll, there'll probably be more medical, fitness, quasi-retail, like title companies and Charles Schwab and Capital One Cafe. Th that stuff will be bigger than the stuff where you bring goods home. So if only 20% of everything going forward or 30% or 40% is the stuff that we used to call retail, everything else is F&B or services 
or showrooms? Am I going to be in the, or, or is there going to be a retail business? What are we going to call it? I see that happening. I don't know. I don't see anybody thinking about it, Yep. but I see that happening for sure. And that's where you're positioning yourself for the future. Oh, heck yeah. That's awesome. Demoing, so demoing, running fashion people off, demoing retail, putting other uses there. Yep. We've put co-working, big, big, like 15 to 20,000 foot co-working deals on the ground floor in two lifestyle retail projects wow. in the last six months. Wow. And I, and I said last question, but since you brought that up, are you a landlord to WeWork? No. Okay. We are a landlord to the Regis Corp okay. spaces yep. and Regis I've been in there. a bunch of places. Location, in yeah. a bunch of places. But uh, WeWork's a, WeWork was a very dicey uh, business model. When you hit a recession, all those big corporations that leased did one and two and three year leases. Yeah. They weren't going to close their corporate headquarters they opened, that right. they own. They're going to close those, those uh, WeWork locations. So, um, no, fortunately not. Thank you very much for spending time with me today. Yeah, I always enjoy spending time with you, Chris. I appreciate it. Take care. God bless you. Thank you, buddy. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. You can also email us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.